Our passage this morning is continuing in Luke chapter 14. So if you turn there, Luke chapter 14. Thank you for joining us this morning on this rainy Sunday morning. What an opportunity it is to come together and gather and learn from God's word. If it's not already on your mind, what are you planning on having for lunch today? It's kind of a strange question, right? Maybe it's already uh, circulating in your brain. Where, where are we going to go after dinner? Maybe some of our ladies already have in the crock pot at home, like at our house, a meal uh, heating up. Um, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of memories as a young man having meals together as a family after church. Uh, growing up in a Christian home, um, I would say that <clears throat> if there was one day in particular, that we were committed to sit down and eat as a family, it was on a Sunday. We were busy through the week. Sometimes that was sitting down with a larger context of our family, including my grandparents, whether it be at their house or or whatever. We lived out in the country, and so uh, oftentimes we would go to church and we would travel to their house and we would have a big family meal. For a while, being a faithful Italian, uh, that meal was pretty much spaghetti on a regular basis. So if that's good, if that sounds good to you, then you would consider me blessed. If you don't like spaghetti, then, you know, shame on you. Um, But I, I feel like that as a culture, especially here in America, and I would say mainly in America, uh, we have ventured away from eating together. We have ventured away from having meals uh, together as a family. Um, I would say that families rarely even get together anymore except around holidays, uh, extended families and the such. Uh, We rarely have people in our homes to to have a meal together with our neighbors. Um, I think even with husbands and wives, uh, we struggle at times to sit down together and have a meal if our children are grown and out of the house, uh, maybe even on a date, which sounds like a foreign concept. But I want us to think about this morning how uh, the, the focus of the meal, the focus of the table was a, a great theme of God's word. Um, not only culturally, because of the type of uh, people that the Jewish people were, but I would say even historically, um, sitting around a table, table and having a meal together is not just about eating, it's about loving one another. It's about community and fellowship. And I, I was reflecting this morning on, this, on my introduction here, um, just being reminded of, of how we have to, to fight for that. You know, I, I think about fast food, uh, the fast food culture today in the fast food industry, and I'm reminded how the commercials always promote families going into fast food restaurants and having a meal together, and we're laughing and enjoying our Coke, and, and yet 90% or more of people that eat fast food are doing it in their car or on the go. They're not actually going in and sitting down and fellowshipping and having community. Because we're such a busy culture. 
And I think from a sense of, of a, from a biblical stance, I'm not trying to speak against fast food today, this morning. I'm just trying to speak uh, for the, uh, the purpose and the, the intentionality of having a meal together, enjoying that fellowship together. If you think about scripture, you will be reminded, especially in the Gospels, of different uh, instances where Jesus is eating with people and performing miracles or teaching um, in that environment. So you'll, you'll remember with me Jesus eating while he's at the wedding feast in Cana. And he turns the water into wine. Or Jesus being invited into Matthew's house where he is um, there teaching and, and eating and dining with the despised tax collectors as a group. You'll be reminded of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then later the 4,000 where they all uh, are provided for miraculously and yet they are sitting down and they are having a meal together. In Luke chapter 7 and chapter 11 and in our passage today in Luke chapter 14, three different times in the book of Luke, we are seeing Jesus sit down after being invited to the home of a Pharisee and having a meal with them. These are his enemies. And Jesus is willing to go in and have this meal with them and using it as an opportunity to teach God's word, to refuse or rebuke error and false teaching. And through it, God uh, uses that in Jesus' ministry with great success. Obviously, Jesus uh, has a Passover meal as, as Jews, they would uh, center their, their festivals and their feasts around eating. There was a great emphasis and a great symbolism with the things that they ate. They represented historical aspects of the Jewish faith and the, and the Jewish history to remind them not of, uh, of the tastiness of a meal, but those individual elements of the Passover meal, for example, represented the faithfulness and the power of God. What a great uh, table talk, as we would say, to be able to, as you're eating such, such things as at the Passover meal, you're reminded of God's faithfulness and his power and his salvation. You have a lot to talk about. Even Jesus, after dying upon the cross and rising from the dead, has meals with his disciples in many different scenarios in his resurrection body. And so let's not discount the fact that God has created us to be people that are uh, coming together and gathering together, uh, enjoying one another's company, not driving down the road in our minivans, but around a meal. And, in, and at that time uh, of, of eating, let us have a focused intentionality of speaking of the things of God. Just as Jesus did teaching and guiding us, let us use those times um, not just to plan our calendars, but to proclaim the gospel and proclaim the truths of God's word with our family and friends. And so that's just the, the introduction to the setting of our passage this morning. This passage in Luke chapter 14 
is actually a two-part sermon. I'll preach this week and I'll preach next week on four lessons from this feast at the Pharisee's house. It's a lot of F's. (laughs) Four lessons from the feast with the Pharisees. Well, that PH is is not an F, so it makes that sound, though. And in alliteration, that works. Today, I'm going to focus on two of them. And then next week, we will look at the last two. It goes from Luke chapter 14, verses 1, all the way down to verse 24. And it's around this feast that Jesus is again engaging with his enemies. And today in our passage, once again showing a triumph over his enemies. And in the same way, teaching upon the great theme and the great truth of humility. So that's kind of the direction that we're going this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 down to verse 24 so we can see the whole uh, context of this feast that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Let me read this in verse 1. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But... When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Which one of which when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, quote, "Blessed is everyone who will uh, eat bread in the kingdom of God." End quote. But he said to him, "A man once gave a banquet and invited many, and at the time uh, for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, "Come, for everyone is now ready." But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, as a whole, what you'll see as a common thread running through these four lessons, these four individual stories, is a, uh, the thread of God's kingdom. Once again, we are looking at Jesus addressing the people of the kingdom and the people of, of the ones rejected and, and denied the kingdom. Jesus is, uh, in one sense, teaching uh, the people, the guests there at this feast. And yet, in the same way, he is rebuking the Pharisees, the hosts of this feast, who will not belong to the kingdom. In our passage today, and in, in the two next week, these are more than just lessons on table etiquette. These are more than just moral stories about how we should live. They are, uh, they are truths and teachings about God and his kingdom. Remember that the emphasis on the feasts and the eating throughout Scripture points to the, the, the time that we will live in all eternity with Christ at the great feast. Even this person sitting at the table with Jesus in Luke chapter 14 verse 15 recalls a famous passage or a famous saying uh, of the Jews regarding eternity when he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's talking about eternity. That is a, a way that they would refer to their place in eternity. And that is the very problem by which Jesus is addressing these kingdom issues. And so the first issue that we will address this morning is the adversaries of the kingdom and Christ's triumph over them. This is the last Sabbath controversy that we will see in the Gospels. This is the final one, Luke has multiple ones, more than any gospel writer. And this is the final one. And it is important to note that in this final Sabbath controversy, Jesus seems to be ruling the conversation. With authority and with power, Jesus has made his point, he has made his case, and he has ruled over these uh, Pharisees arguing once again about the Sabbath. Now notice that Luke does not tell us um, much of a setting besides that this is a Sabbath day. 
And it was customary on a Sabbath day for the Pharisees and, and the leaders there to prepare a meal on the previous day, have that meal prepared so that on the Sabbath they wouldn't work and violate the Sabbath, but they would have a meal prepared already to feed people. In particular, feed those that were the honored guests and even speakers at the synagogue. So there, Jesus is invited to this house of the the ruler of the Pharisees, and he is there to have a meal. And you can imagine a a large seating area um, where they would lounge and eat together. And it's there that uh, Jesus notices and spots a man with a, a disease called dropsy. Now, this disease... You may not be familiar with this disease uh, with, by that title. Uh, I think the other more common word is edema. And it is a uh, swelling of the tissue when oftentimes a person's uh, organs begin to sh- shut down and fail. And so the, the body begins to swell and water is collected in, in the tissue. And so it's what I would call like silly putty skin. When you're, when you're swelling in that way and you push down in an indention on your skin, the indention doesn't go away. And oftentimes, not always, I'm not a medical doctor, but what I read, oftentimes that's a sign of, 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 of disease and, and sickness and oftentimes failure in your organs. Now be reminded as we've gone through these Sabbath controversies that the Pharisees found it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath, if their life was in danger. But their problem with Jesus was they never sought to consider the people that were sick and considered their, their sicknesses as life-threatening, and so they would always rebuke Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. Their, their focus, even here, is not on the man who's come in and, and has this disease which points to a potential life-threatening sickness. Instead, the Bible says that they are merely watching Jesus carefully. Some commentators even believe that this man has been planted to catch Jesus. That they have found a man who they would consider without a life-threatening injury and they have brought him to the dinner so that they can catch Jesus in breaking the Sabbath. They are manipulating and they are trying to uh, spring the trap that they have set. And that's very possible. But notice the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus immediately looks at the Pharisees and asks them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? If you'll hold your place here, there is a very similar scenario with Jesus in Luke chapter 6. So much so that I want to bring in the similarities of these two passages. Luke chapter 6, 6 through 11. This is the healing Um, of another man on the Sabbath. In verses 6 of Luke chapter 6, it says, On another Sabbath, this time he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there, and his right hand was withered. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might have a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he again said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him was, stretch out your hand. He did so, his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now there's a couple similarities here that I think are, are worthy to note, and that mainly focuses on the Pharisees. Although one was in the home of a Pharisee and one was in the synagogue, these scribes and Pharisees were, they were conniving, as we talked about last week. They were manipulating. They were trying to catch Jesus. They were using these crippled men as springs to the trap. They were trying to find a reason to accuse Jesus. But again, in God's infinite wisdom and the Lord Jesus, in his sovereign understanding of people's hearts and thoughts, he then asks the question of them, a question which they cannot answer. And in both situations, while they are silently plotting, Jesus is bringing them to silence. They are silently plotting, and yet they are not willing to answer Jesus' question. Why? Because in Luke chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 14, if they answer Jesus' question as, yes, it's okay for you to heal this person, then they would feel in their, they would be uh, convicted in their own heart of, of going against their belief of breaking the Sabbath. But yet if they say no, they will appear uh, inconsiderate of this man's condition, which could very well lead to death, and thus also break the Sabbath, which stated that they, they were able to heal or give aid to those who were in life-threatening situations. So Jesus has trapped them. And the result of the trapping is an important truth, the silence of Jesus' enemies. That Jesus triumphs over his enemies. And in this case, and in this situation, just as he does in Luke chapter 6, he silences them. This is the victory. That Jesus has shown his authority and he has shown his wisdom and truth in such a way that his authority and his wisdom and his truth always triumphs over his enemies. This is the hope, this is the encouragement that we have this morning. That in the triumph and in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, his enemies will be silenced. Here with their mere words. But as a kingdom perspective, as I said, as, as a kingdom whole, we see that Jesus Christ, in his victory on the cross, also silences his enemies. But he will silence them not with words. He will silence them in judgment. And this is the theme throughout Scripture. 
I was amazed this week to study and see how many times the Lord Jesus and then after his ascension into heaven, his apostles and his, uh, his church leaders also moving and being working in such a way uh, uh, through the power of the Spirit that the, the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ were silenced. Be reminded of Luke chapter 20. When Jesus is, is there being questioned by scribes and priests. And they're trying to again catch him. It's not a Sabbath day. But they're asking him, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Remember this story? They're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus replies to render Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. And in Luke chapter 20 verse 26 it says, They were not able... Uh, in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. It's amazing. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, standing and proclaiming the gospel, not willing to back down preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, we're reminded that the, the religious leaders were astonished and marveled at the boldness of Peter and John, these uneducated common men. And they had recognized that they had been with Jesus, and yet they had nothing to say, the Bible says, in opposition. We see this in the life of Stephen, at his, as his, at his martyrdom, where he is full of grace and power, doing wonderful works and signs among the people. And that should bring encouragement to us because the Lord Jesus Christ, in his reign upon all things and in his victory upon the cross, not only is showing us a future victory uh, by silencing his enemies, but showing us what he accomplished by dying on the cross, was, be, was buried and rose from the grave, that in that victory, he silences his enemies. That is his victory. They have nothing else to say. They, he is stopping the mouths of his enemies in his victory over them. I was thinking about this in on a practical level about the, the power of the word of God that, that as I'm, I'm so encouraged as a, as a pastor of church, uh, of a church of people that, that understand and, 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 and believe in the authority and the power of God's word. So that when we go out and we share the gospel with our neighbor or our friends or our children, we're not trusting in the wisdom of man. We are trusting in the, the power-infused Word of God that can change hearts that seem unwilling. We find encouragement in knowing that the Word of God is so full of power and so full of might. We don't need to be convincing of people. The Word of God is convincing. That the Spirit of God is what does the, the amazing work and it silences the enemies of God. This doesn't mean that we will never go out in the world and find a good debate out there. We will, it doesn't mean that we'll never find opposition. 
But if we have confidence in the mighty work of Christ upon the cross of his powerful resurrection, then we understand that the words written in this book are so powerful that we can share them and they do a life-transforming work on the gravest of sinners. So that even Satan, who tries to accuse the guilty, cannot stand with a good argument, but instead is silenced by the victory that Christ had upon the cross. His arguments fall flat when he says to you, you should be ashamed of the sinfulness of your past. And the victory of Christ says, you have no longer any reason to be ashamed. Christ took your shame upon himself. So have hope. Find joy. And so while Christ in this passage is putting these men to shame, silencing them in verse 4, when he asks them the question, says that they remained silent. And then with logic, he asked them, if you having a son or an ox fall into a well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull them out? The logic and the wisdom there is, of course we would. And once again, verse 6, which is more emphatic, which is more powerful, says, not that they didn't, they remained silent willingly, Verse 6 actually says, they could not reply to these things. They were unable. That is the power and the victory of the Lord Jesus. But consider the contrast of that. That the enemies of God are silenced in judgment through his victory, and yet the contrast is that the people of God are not silent. We are loud, we are singing, and we are rejoicing at the victory of Christ. While the enemies of God are silenced, we are full of a new song that God has put in our mouth. A song of praise to our God. Psalm 40 verse 3. Psalm 47 says, clap your hands all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. God's people are called to make a joyful noise, not a joyful silence. And so as I am reminded of the the effort and the the time that Adam and, and, and Elijah and Jonathan and, and Katie put into leading us in worship, their hearts and desires are the same as the leadership here. We want to lead you in not being silent, but making a joyful noise as people who are proclaiming a victory through Jesus Christ. That is what we sing. We sing and make joyful noises, not because we are excellent singers, because we have so much to sing about. And because the opposite, the contrast, is that the enemies of God are the ones that are silent. We are the ones who sing with joy. 
So let me encourage you on behalf of, of the Redemption Community Band that we are, uh, we are challenged and, and led to make joyful noises, to not be concerned with the melodies of our voices, but instead to be, uh, to be intentional and purposeful in singing these songs of rich theology and, and truth about what Christ has accomplished. If these songs that we sing have anything to do with us, it's about our unworthiness of the grace that we've received. Doesn't, we don't sing songs about how we deserve salvation. We sing songs that remind us of the wretchedness and the undeservedness of, of what we have been given by the victory in Christ Jesus. So as you sing, sing loudly and sing proudly for what Christ has accomplished on the cross. That he provides us a righteousness that we do not deserve. And so we sing of his righteousness. We sing of his grace. We sing of his forgiveness, of his adoption. We sing of the, the, the miry clay that we were once brought up out of. That he has placed our feet on a, a rock. Read through the Psalms and be reminded that these are songs sung of rejoicing of the salvation that's been provided in Christ. And so Christ triumphs over his enemies And second, Christ teaches on kingdom meekness. As Jesus, still there at the feast, notices something else. His first notice was this man with this disease. His second notice was these, um, these places of honor that were being established unfairly by the people invited if you'll imagine with me for a moment um, what a feast like this looked like, since hopefully none of you lay down when you eat a meal. It's a strange cultural thing for us to consider Jesus and the disciples and the people of this day reclining at a table. Sounds, sounds somewhat lazy. But typically, if you can imagine uh, the, a, a pattern shaped like the letter U, um, and a room full of those patterns of couches where there was uh, the base of the U was one couch and then upright U's on each side or upright couches on each side making the form of a U. And they were all over. And there was uh, one in the center as you entered the room and the, the base of that U you can follow me, was the highest place of honor. Table number one, couch number one at the base of the U, and then of course the couch to the left of that was position two, and then three. And then the next section, still in the shape of a U, with a table in the middle, was five, six, seven, and then eight, nine, and so on. 
That's the, that's the, um, the, the pattern, the, the way that these, uh, this, this culture of people would lay out. And so imagine as the feast begins, people are coming in and they're beginning to find those places. And Jesus noticed that these Pharisees have, um, they have almost kind of reserved places and people are scurrying to the highest places of honor. Now, as, you, as I said earlier, the, the Pharisees would have uh, invited people to come, uh, dignitaries or guests, maybe those who stood up and spoke, uh, rabbis that had spoke at the synagogue. And so those places were reserved. And imagine um, that, that, that people were coming in and they were scurrying to those places and staying there, or sitting there, or reclining there. And Jesus notices this. And so he wants to teach a lesson. And it's a twofold lesson about humility. The first lesson is for those invited. And he says in the context of a wedding, he says when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Now, I believe that Jesus uses this illustration in this parable because it's pretty easy to understand who the person of honor is at a wedding, right? Like if, if your Uncle Sal comes into the wedding and he's like got a plate full of food and he sits where the bride and groom sit, you're pretty... You're pretty embarrassed by that, right? You're like, there goes Uncle Sal again. That guy just can't, he can't get it. He doesn't have all the social cues going on uh, in our family. And so Jesus uses the wedding feast as this example of someone that you would never consider going in and sitting where the bride or groom or her parents or his parents may sit in a wedding feast. It's a place of honor. So Jesus' instruction is, But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. In verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now understand once again that Jesus is not just trying to teach these people where to sit at a wedding feast. Or a a, a Pharisee gathering. He's not just trying to teach them about proper table etiquette or table manners. He is always teaching on a spiritual level, on a spiritual plane, about greater spiritual truths. And he is using this as an example. And again, in the context of the kingdom, he is teaching people that if you belong to the kingdom, you will not seek the place of honor. You will not demand that you deserve to be a lo- uh, belonging to the kingdom. Just as we sing songs reminding ourselves of our wretchedness and how we were saved from it, so we also, when we gather together, we serve one another as believers in Christ. We're not here to be served. And so Jesus is explaining on, in one part People that belong to the kingdom are people who live in humility. 
that genuine spirit-born humility rejoices at the successfulness of our colleagues at work instead of fumes with contempt at being passed up for a promotion. A parent that is spirit-filled is with genuine humility willing to praise the accomplishments of others while their children have less success in school or sports or development. Because this all points back to how we came to the kingdom. We are coming to the kingdom not because we deserve, but because we do not deserve the place of honor. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is honored. And as we come to the kingdom in Christ, we remain in the kingdom because of Christ. And we will be carried and and preserved through the kingdom because of his uh, sacrifice for us. Because of his rule and reign and authority, we claim no glory. We claim no accomplishment. Hey, what are you doing here in heaven? Um, Jesus. That's why I'm here. I'm reclining at the table with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation because of Jesus. The same reason they're here. We're all here gathered together because he was willing to become sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We would be safe to say that we have improper physiology as human beings to be able to fly like a bird. We can't do it. Unassisted, our physiology and the, the, the physical makeup of our bodies do not allow us to lift off the ground, to jump off a building and find flight. Physiologically, we cannot do it. It's impossible. We could also say then spiritually that it is impossible for us to truly live humble lives if we don't already belong to the kingdom. There's been no spiritual change. There is no union with Christ, who is the perfect example of humility. And so without that power and without that connection, we are unable to be humble. That is why Jesus is giving us a classification of those who will belong to the kingdom. People willing to not exalt ourselves, but instead be humbled. And at the proper time, those who belong to the kingdom and who live humble lives will be exalted because of Christ. I appreciate William Hendrickson. It's a great commentary. The New Testament commentary, if you want to pick up a fairly inexpensive commentary on the whole New Testament. Uh, Simon Kistemaker and William Hendrickson uh, provide a great resource of Bible study. And uh, it's easy to read. It's very thorough. Um, I would highly recommend that commentary to you. And in his commentary on Luke, he recalls examples of both the humble and the proud throughout Scripture. And he does so in a poetic style. 
And I thought I'd read a couple of to you this morning. He says, do you recall Jezebel? Her, her boastful words, her lying tongue, how she was out the window flung, her body then reduced to dung. And Herod Agrippa II, now look at him so richly groomed and listen to him, but he is doomed, his body by the worms consumed. And in contrast, there's Hannah. In sorrow, she did not rebel. Humbly, she prayed. As God would tell, he gave her little Samuel. And also there was Paul. His life was Christ. T'was not a dream. We're saved by, by grace. That was his theme. God sent his son to us to redeem And so as I said, this two-part instruction of the Lord Jesus at this feast about humility, one was a education for those there that thought maybe they belonged to the kingdom. Maybe he was rebuking those that had acted um, in such a way not uh, reflective of his kingdom. But the second part, and I think uh, to carry along with Uh, our first section of scripture is that he is rebuking the Pharisees. This phrase, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted is called the great reversal by many theologians. And it described for us the people of Israel. It describes for us in particular or specifically these Pharisees because it was the very theme of their lives to exalt themselves in the places of honor. Remember the passage in Luke which reminds us of the uh, Pharisee going to the temple to pray and the tax collector going as well. One is praying arrogantly, God, thank you for not creating me to be like this adulterer. Thank you for creating me not to, to be not like this uh, tax collector um, or this extortioner. And then you have the, the tax collector there who is humble before God saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. It was the Pharisees that lived lives in such a way that they were the very ones exalting themselves and in the same way would see that in judgment when Christ consummates his kingdom, they will be humbled in in their destruction and punishment for all eternity. And so it is the theme of the kingdom of God to humble those that exalt themselves in judgment and to exalt those who are humbled by their sin, who live as meek and yet will inherit the kingdom of God as Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5. We could say in, in, in essence that Verse 11 of Matthew chapter or of Luke chapter 14, this great reversal is an outline of God's work in the kingdom, both of judgment and of salvation and exaltation, judgment for his enemies and humble salvation and exaltation for his people.
And so these are just two of the lessons this morning. One dealing with the enemies of God and others dealing with those who belong to the kingdom of God. And and the simple question for you this morning is which one do you belong to? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, my prayer this morning is that you would live in such a humble way that you are reflective of the life that you have been given in Christ and that you would seek to serve and not be served. That as Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many, you would be willing to serve your family to put their needs above your own, to put their desires and their uh, emotional stability and and the the time that you have with them, you would place that as a higher priority than your own desires and preferences and time consumption. And we can all confess with repentant hearts that that is the struggle of the flesh against the spirit. That we would live in such a way in our workplaces that we would be willing to rejoice in the successes of people that we work with. If we're we're athletes, we would rejoice in the successes of people who accomplish great things. Even in their state of unbelief, we would rejoice in their rejoicing that we would suffer in their sufferings because that is what the people of God that belong to his kingdom do not striving for a position of honor but being willing to lay down any honor that we may deserve for someone else And if you do not belong to the kingdom of God, understand the seriousness of the judgment that we have so clearly spoken of the last few weeks. Young people to older people here today, let me encourage you to evaluate your faith and ask yourself, do I trust in Christ alone or am I depending upon my own righteousness, my own religiosity my own good works to merit some pleasing position before God. And if you don't know him today, as we taught the little kids this morning, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Would you pray with me?